Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 4. A Priest at War. The Tale of Father Dmitri Smirnov. Smoking, clanking, clattering, a train slowly makes its way through the endless, flat Polish fields. May sunshine glitters on the new arrivals of spring. Bright flowers, emerald grass, the darker jade of hungry fresh leaves. The dirt roads, though, are bereft of their usual traffic. Peasant horses and carts meandering their way to and from market, weighed down by heavy produce and delicate handicrafts. In their place are soldiers, on foot, in the saddle and behind the wheel, churning up mud as they advance. In the opposite direction go sad streams of bedraggled refugees, hoping for refuge in Warsaw. The train too is packed with a military medley. Soldiers in rough green-brown khakis loiter, smoking, chatting, snoozing and surreptitiously boozing. All bear the marks of war, dirt-spattered greatcoats, hastily wrapped bandages masking a gash or a broken bone, odours of unwashed bodies and gunpowder. A gaggle of nurses sits, their laughter piercing the air like a shrieking shell. But it's all a bit too merry, as if the guffaws are trying to mask something terrible, buried not too deep beneath the surface. And in the corner sits a priest. He is most definitely a priest. A hefty beard covers most of his face. A long black robe has been clumsily arranged around him. A large cross slowly swings around his neck. Father Dmitri Smirnov has closed his eyes, but he is not sleeping. Perhaps he is thinking of his home, a small vicarage in a village near Smolensk. The spring will be bringing much work, not only couples to wed and babies to baptise, but animals to tend and repairs to be made. How will his wife cope, he wonders, or by herself? Or maybe he's thinking of the last time when he travelled in the company of soldiers making his way around Manchuria a decade ago to tend to the wounded as the Japanese victoriously advanced. Or perhaps he ruminates on his most recent service in the town of Wamsa, from whence the train now speeds, riding out on horseback to the rear lines where a small coterie of Cossacks stood, waiting for the solace of a divine service, hoping to set their souls at ease before the next clash with the Imperial German army. A whisper starts making its way around the train, passing from anxious mouth to anxious mouth, sparking a terrible glint of fear in the eyes and hearts of all who speak it. There is only one word. Gas! Gas! The Germans have used gas! Smirnov wearily opens his eyes. There will be work for him in Warsaw. The next day, he wrote a report to his bishop in Moscow about the scenes he had witnessed. Almost all the hospitals are full, not with the ill or the wounded, but with the departed. In one hospital, 20 people died in less than two days. 600 people died on the train on the way to Warsaw. All of the departed were fully conscious until the last moments of life. It is difficult for them to breathe and impossible to cough. One doctor just finished a dissection and said that the breathing organs of the deceased, the lungs and passageways, are such that it is impossible to help them. Those few of them who survive 
will not recover for a long time. Today I went to eight hospitals and everywhere I saw the horror of the suffering. I do not know where our government is looking. It is necessary to take all possible measures. This is very pitiful and upsetting. This is not war, but an atrocity. The upsetting and pitiful state of these sufferers is simply unbearable. Smirnov was not alone in witnessing such horrors. Across the Russian front of the First World War, stretching from the Baltic to the Black Sea, hundreds of religious personnel gave solace to the wounded, last rites to the dying, and a proper burial to the hundreds of thousands dead. One witness reported the work of an orthodox priest in a hospital. The father was in a hurry as the wounded were dying. He was trembling all over from fatigue and intense emotions. The picture was terrible. The wounded lay on the floor covered in blood. Many had badly damaged skulls. The brain was visible. Sticky blood sluiced down their faces in which irritating flies got stuck. However, Smirnov was distinct in one key way. He did not belong to the Russian Orthodox Church, the official religion of the Russian Empire. Nor was he a Protestant or a Catholic, faiths long tolerated by the state, whose clergy had official positions in the army. Instead, Smirnov was an old believer, a confession that had only received respite from centuries of persecution a decade before. Consequently, the religion lacked many of the connections with official institutions possessed by other groups with a more advantageous legal position. The fact that the old believers had only just begun to enjoy the fruits of toleration when the war began determined Smirnov's experience of the conflict and that of his colleagues. But what was old belief? The answer is to be found two and a half centuries before the Great War began, in the middle of the 17th century. Zealous Russian Orthodox churchmen looked around them and saw nothing but moral squalor, spiritual decay and vile licentiousness. Russia was abandoning its piety and losing God's favour. How then to win back divine grace? Patriarch Nikon, the leading bishop of the church, believed he had found the solution in rituals. Comparing Russian rites with Greek ones, which were alleged to be older, differences were found. Thus it was concluded that even in its symbols, the Russian church was being corrupted. To fight the rot, the rites must be purified and the Greek originals restored. Nikon's ambitious reforms, however, quickly met with strong opposition from the priesthood and many of the believers. With no small amount of xenophobia, some rejected the foreignness of the new rites. Others resented being told that they, their fathers and their grandfathers had all been performing the sacred acts in ways that stained them with sin. But Nikon charged forward regardless, brooking no challenge to his authority. Backed by the Tsar, the Russian Orthodox Church confirmed the new reformed Nikonian rites in 1666 and cast out the adherents of the old ways declaring upon them anathema. Now viewed as dangerous schismatics, rebels against both state and church, the old believers were hunted down by soldiers, tortured and executed if they did not repent. In the north, 
the monks of Solovetsky Monastery, an island outpost amidst the frigid waters of the White Sea, bravely fought back against the Tsar's men in an eight-year siege, but in vain. Reportedly, only 60 of the 500 defenders survived, and most of them were executed. For their part, the old believers held that the Nikonian reforms had put an end to Christianity in Russia. Now ruled the Antichrist and his servants. So rather than allow the foot soldiers of the devil to corrupt them, many burnt themselves alive. Others fled into the depths of the northern woods, the frozen wastes of Siberia, or even abroad, forming small communities insulated from the fallen world outside. By the beginning of the 18th century, the old believers were not some small sect. Perhaps they were as many as 20% of the Russian population, a number that did not diminish as time passed. Given their vast size, the state began to relax its prohibitions. Under Peter the Great, the old believers were not hunted or killed, but instead were allowed a degree of openness, so long as they paid a double tax and wore distinctive clothing. Catherine the Great, ruling between 1762 and 1797, went still further, allowing old believers to open prominent charitable centres in major cities, such as the magnificent monastery complexes of Rogozhgaya and Pliobozhenskaya in Moscow. Catherine was not just moved by the milk of human kindness, however. She wanted to bring tens of thousands of old believers out of hiding so that they could be resettled, taxed and conscripted. Equally, the old believer elite was made up of wealthy and industrious merchants, whose funds and prominent social standing could be a great benefit to the state. However, Catherine's largesse towards the old believers was not to last. In the 19th century, under the officious and autocratic Nicholas I, ruled 1825 to 1855, the schismatics found themselves on the receiving end of blunt persecution. Their priests were exiled, their monasteries and churches ransacked, their ancient books and bejeweled icons either burnt or handed out among the Orthodox faithful. The holy altars of the Rogozhkoya monasteries in Moscow were locked and remained sealed for five decades. As the policies of the state evolved, so too did the old believers. Some decided to reject the priesthood entirely, relying on normal men and women to lead their religious lives. Of these, some rejected both sex and marriage, while others authorised civil matrimony. Several groups still insisted that priests were necessary and eagerly adopted those pastors who, for one reason or another, had to flee from the official Orthodox Church. And while in the depths of the countryside many still maintained the notion that the Tsar and his government were of the Antichrist, those who lived and worked in towns and cities, surrounded by people from other faiths, lost their radicalism, adapting to the world around them. As the 19th century reached its close, old believer merchants, gifted with no end of capital, transformed themselves into leading industrialists and philanthropists, their factories churning out modern goods, their donations enriching the exhibits of art galleries, their sons dispatched to Europe for the best education money could buy. Social views on the schismatics also changed in this period. Once viewed as detestable and dark ignoramai, 
the old believers were reinterpreted in the eyes of many beholders. Those on the left hearkened to the story of centuries-long opposition to the Tsars. Those on the right saw them as valiant defenders of Russian traditions, which they had kept pure from Western contamination. Demands ever increased for toleration to be granted to the old believers. Why not accept these people, loyal to the Tsar, loyal to tradition, loyal to the Russian motherland? By the beginning of the 20th century, Nicholas II and even some members of the official Orthodox Church were increasingly sympathetic to these pleas. At this juncture, we rejoin our hero, Father Dmitri Smirnov. Regrettably, we know very little about him, not even when or where he was born, or when and where he died. The son of a peasant father, he was a priestly old believer with a parish and family in Smolensk province. In the 1890s, he had come to some prominence in Moscow old believer circles, engaging in polemics with old believer groups who did not accept the priesthood. Then, in 1904, his life changed. The Russo-Japanese War began, with Russia's armies and navies hurriedly being dispatched to the Far East to fight in Manchuria. Given the sizes of the forces involved, all believers no doubt made up a good proportion of the soldiers sent to fight. Evidently, Smirnov and his supporters in Moscow hoped to exploit the indulgent attitude of Nicholas II and many in his government towards the old believers. Surely now they would be allowed to provide spiritual counsel for their troops fighting and dying in a very distant land. Smirnov and another priest sought to test this theory and set out for the front in May 1904, travelling through Chelyabinsk to Harbin, a Russo-Chinese town near the army's main encampment at Mukden. However, they were soon hindered by their schismatic status. While the army's generals were more than happy for them to visit the troops at Mukden, the head Orthodox military priest immediately denied them permission, since they had no official status. This state of affairs was to endure for the rest of the war. At least Smirnov got a chance to observe conditions whilst at the HQ. The soldiers all slept in the open air, he said, a hardship given that the mud was like, in his word, chocolate. Back in Harbin, things were no easier. The official Orthodox, Lutheran, Catholic and Muslim army clergy got their salaries from the state. Not so for Smirnov and his colleague, who were dependent on haphazard donations from home. At one point, Smirnov was even forced to sell his watch to buy food and pay rent for their tiny, two-roomed apartment. They lived in one room and held services in the other. Their letters to Moscow frequently went ignored. They were often welcomed into hospitals to perform services, but the army's many medical stations were scattered across the vast region, and neither of the old believer priests was entitled to free rail travel. Even when they did manage to travel, they encountered problems. Smirnov, when waiting at a train station in early April 1905, found himself placed under arrest by gendarmes at the behest of a suspicious official Orthodox priest. Only threats to telegram the Minister of War procured his release. Frustrated at every turn and receiving missives from his wife that money was short, it is no wonder that Father Dmitri repeatedly threatened to sell his things and return home. 
the military disasters unfolding at Mukden and Tsushima can hardly have improved his morale. But he stuck it out long enough to receive one piece of good news. On the 17th of April, 1905, Nicholas II had signed into law an Edict of Toleration, which finally, after hundreds of years of persecution, gave the old believers the rights of the other Christian confessions. In the local Harbin newspaper, he joyously sifted through the report that the seals on the Rogozhkaya monastery altars had been broken, revealing the dusty, damaged, but preserved holies beyond. In the years that followed, the Russian state began to work out its new relationship with the Old Believers. The Ministry of War initiated discussions on giving the Old Believers official chaplains in the army and navy, like the other tolerated faiths. But the official Russian Orthodox Church, incensed by the victory that the April 1905 edict had handed to its ancient enemy, blocked their efforts. The old believers had happily celebrated Napoleon's entry into Moscow, one bishop falsely claimed. How could they be entrusted with raising the patriotic spirits of soldiers and sailors? And so, when the fateful summer of 1914 arrived, the old believer leaders were scarcely any better prepared than they had been a decade earlier. Nonetheless, on the declaration of war, Smirnov's bishop issued a sterling call to his loyal followers. Old believer soldiers should fight for faith, Tsar and motherland until the barbaric enemy was defeated. Old believer civilians should donate what they could spare. And old believer priests should, if they could, present themselves for service. Smirnov and three other priests quickly answered the call. This time they had no problem going to the front. The army provided free transport, rail when moving between towns, horses, carts and even cars when moving between encampments, and gave the priests batmen to serve as psalmists. This better treatment was, in part, due to a new orthodox head chaplain who believed the needs of the fighting men trumped interconfessional squabbling. But other issues recurred. Donations from an economically pressured populace had to suffice in lieu of salaries, no small hardship given the grossly inflated prices for food and accommodation in the front-line cities. The price of bread had doubled in Warsaw by the autumn of 1914, Smirnov relayed. Furthermore, unlike professional army chaplains, these priests were volunteers. They still had parishes and families at home who needed care and support. At repeated points before the summer of 1916, the Old Believer chaplains reported being on the brink of penury. What is more, there were only four priests to serve along the massive front in Eastern Europe and the Caucasus. On the front line near Romania alone, there were an estimated 30,000 Old Believer fighters present, along with 129 military hospitals in need of visiting. Noting the marked absence of their clergy, these soldiers began complaining to the bishop in Moscow, who angrily remonstrated with the chaplains for what he perceived as a dereliction of duty. This provoked an outburst of apoplectic anger from one of Smirnov's colleagues. Holy Father, what you demand of me is directly impossible. I told you personally that there is no possibility 
that all the needs of our dear soldiers can be satisfied by a single priest on such a colossal front. There are 600 Nikonian priests on the southwestern front, and two Roman Catholic ones for each army, but you want one person to administer and complete all of the required rites. I am already deprived of health, and now I have received undeserved accusations in place of thanks, which further acts upon my weak nerves. For 16 months, we have not had a day or night of peace. We are battered with hunger and cold, and as a result, I receive this kind of thanks. Maybe I will follow the priest on the Caucasus front, who gave up and returned home, because there is no chance of doing the undoable. The fury was justified. All other reports about the priests point to their endless hard work in immensely arduous circumstances. Impressed by Smirnov's ceaseless visits to his hospital, one chief doctor in Warsaw asked for him to be awarded a commendation. One of Smirnov's colleagues became the first and only Old Believer priest to be given a state award, the Order of St. Anna, third class. In the spring of 1916, a solution was sought, the creation of an official Old Believer military chaplaincy. Smirnov and his colleagues were told to pester army command as much as possible, while the bishop in Moscow insistently petitioned the imperial government. Their labour quickly bore fruit. After a few months, the state responded to the requests by providing salaries, not just to the three priests still serving, but also for another five chaplains, two of whom would serve a naval squadrons based in St. Petersburg and the Crimea. While eight priests was still far too few, it did at least take some pressure off Smirnov. More importantly, it was a significant sign of old beliefs increased legitimacy in the eyes of the state and society. For the chaplains themselves, these attempts to better organise and fund their work were background noise, of course. Much like the men they served, their day-to-day -day lives were filled with horror and danger. Close to the front, Smirnov experienced the heart-stopping terror of shelling. Joining the Russian army's headlong retreat in the summer of 1915, he was regularly subjected to bombing by German planes. Father Bistrov, one of the new priests in 1916, lost his son. The body was blown to bits, leaving the grieving father with nothing to bury. But, as repeated letters in the archive attest, such hardships won them the appreciation of all believer soldiers. Two such men provided a letter of thanks to the Moscow bishop, radiantly describing a holy liturgy performed by Father Kondrat Pushechkin on the 22nd of August 1916 in the Caucasus. In the field church, we sinners performed the holy evensong. The service was the Annunciation to the Holy Virgin. Before everything started, Father Kondrat asked us if we desired to take Christ's holy sacraments. All with joy said, We desire it, Father Kondrat. Then we began to prepare to accept them. After the prayers, Father Kondrat expressed gratitude to the Sovereign Emperor, all the ruling house, all the Christ-loving army, and all the priests and monks confessing the word of the truth. Upon his exit from the church, Father Kondrat explained to us that his visit was allowed by the petition of your grace before his imperial majesty. And so it came to pass. You sent Father Kondrat to us, 
the old believer soldiers of Mother Russia. However, no amount of effort by the priests or the soldiers they cared for could prevent the repeated defeats endured by the Imperial Army. The February and October revolutions in 1917 introduced chaos on the war and home fronts, effectively bringing Russia's struggle in the conflict to an end. And, as with so many millions, the old believer chaplains were scattered to the winds. Father Dmitri appears once more in our records, attending an old believer congress in 1917 to beg for further assistance. And then he vanishes. Perhaps, like at least one of the other chaplains, he served with the White Army during the Russian Civil War. Or perhaps he met a violent end, never again to see his countryside home near Smolensk. If he did survive, then it seems unlikely that Father Dmitri would have liked what he saw. The victory of the Bolsheviks in the Civil War meant that their atheist ideology was triumphant. Soon, all faiths in the Soviet Union were subjected to a persecution far harsher and more sustained than anything the imperial regime had been able to concoct. Old belief, a centuries-old subculture with millions of faithful throughout Russia and abroad, suffered particularly heavily under Stalin. Although it has survived into post-Soviet modernity, it is much diminished from its late imperial heyday. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time. Mm -hmm.